Hello and welcome to Making Tech Better, Made Tech's fortnightly podcast bringing you content from all over the world on how to improve your software delivery. My name is Claire Sudbury, my pronouns are she and her, and I am a lead engineer at Made Tech. Wednesday the 1st of December 2021, I spoke to Lou Down. Lou used to be the head of user-centred design and service standards at the Government Digital Service, otherwise known as GDS. And they're the author of Good Services, the service design bible, which has already been recommended by a couple of other guests. So I was very pleased when Lou agreed to come on the show. Hello, Lou. Hello, Claire. Thank you for coming on the podcast. It's really great to see you. I'm going to start with the same question that I ask everybody. So who in this industry are you inspired by? It's a really, really good question, actually. When you sent me this question, I had a really good think about it. My answer is not going to be someone that's in the industry, unfortunately, but it is someone who has inspired me really recently. uh, And that is Peter Thatchell. Some of you might know Peter Thatchell, some of you might not, but Peter Thatchell is a human rights campaigner, particularly for LGBT plus issues, who has been tirelessly campaigning for ultimately human rights for every person uh, in the world for a number of years. And I recently watched the documentary about him called Hating Peter Thatchell, which if you haven't seen, you should absolutely watch. And it's a true example, I think, of dedication to making the world a better place for everyone. And yeah, I would thoroughly recommend it. Fantastic. Yeah, I mean, I first came across Peter Thatchell a long time ago when I was campaigning against Clause 28, which was like way back in in the late 80s. He's just been constantly campaigning, hasn't he? Absolutely. Fantastic. Okay. So can you tell us a bit about what you do? So I run the School of Good Services, which is a very small organisation of one currently. <laughs> does that class as an organisation? I think it does. Absolutely, yes. <laughs> but essentially, I help organisations to design and deliver better services and help them to overcome all of the different problems uh, that they encounter along the way through coaching and training. So it's really based on the 15 principles of good service design that I wrote in the book, Good Service. Fantastic. And we will come on to those 15 principles. But always when I talk about services, I actually ask people to define what they mean by a service, because the word gets used in lots of different contexts. And if you're not used to it, you don't necessarily know. So can you do that for us? I'm so glad that you asked that question, Claire. (laughs) It's my favourite question. And I think it's so important for people who are practising service design or interested in the field to be able to have a really clear explanation of the thing that they are designing. (laughs) You know, it's kind of vital. Uh, So for for me, a service is something that helps someone to do something. And ultimately, that can be very, very simple, like buying a chocolate bar. It can be very complex and long, like helping someone to regain health after an accident. Uh, So really, a service is something that helps someone to do something. Fantastic. Thank you. I know that you spent some time as, I've got this written down, as Head of User-Centred Design and Service Standards at the Government Digital Service, which generally gets shortened to GDS. And we've actually had a few people on the podcast who are ex-GDS, and it's such an iconic organisation. And how did it feel to have such an influence on the citizens' experience of government digital offerings? I suppose it felt like a huge responsibility, Mm. as it should do, because ultimately, as a public servant, you are there to make sure that 
the most vulnerable people in society are cared for and looked after. And when your job is uh, to manage all of the designers and all of the people working on making sure that those services come up to standard, that's a huge responsibility to take very seriously. So, yeah, I was very aware every time I went into work of the, the kind of responsibility I had, not just to users, but also to the huge community that we built of over 2,000 designers, user researchers and content designers across central government. 2,000? Yeah, at the time, I don't know about now, um, but it was certainly the biggest design team in the UK. Mm. And, you know, not really surprising, I suppose, considering that the government is the largest service provider in the country. So really, we should have (laughs) the largest design team. Yeah. Certainly the largest number of service designers working on those services. But I think it's always interesting to encounter people surprised about that, because I suppose unless you knew that those people were there, then you wouldn't know they were there. And I suppose that's kind of part of the power of it in a way. You know, you shouldn't really notice that all of these designers have been there. You should just notice better services. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. I think there is maybe a perception, though, that if something is in the public realm, if it's something funded by government, that therefore it might be underfunded and therefore it might not be getting the same attention or, or investment as something in the private realm. But actually, in terms of service design, GDS is actually leading the way, isn't it? I mean, you know, there are people in the private sector who are following the example that is set by GDS? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I think that's for a really good reason. Ultimately, GDS and the government more widely, because, you know, I should say that most of the designers who work in government don't work for GDS. They work for DWP and HMRC and, you know, all of the other amazing departments that are doing really good work. Yeah. But I think part of the attraction is that ultimately you get to work on things that really matter in people's lives. And that will always attract people who want to do really good work. And equally for service designers, you know, having a consistent design language that means that you don't have to worry about what color you're using, (laughs) what font you're using, and literally you're designing a black and white website is incredibly attractive because it means that you can actually get on with the really important stuff, which is, you know, what's actually happening to that person? What are we helping them to do? Mm. And of course, all of that work is possible through the really amazing graphic design and interaction design that's done as well. So it's a kind of product of that huge diversity of different perspectives on design and that huge diversity of skills that's still throughout government today. So, yeah, it's kind of amazing to see. Yeah. Just for clarity, actually, you talked about those 2000 people and you also talked about the fact that GDS is just one part of it. So there are lots of organisations that make up central government like DWP. When you said those 2000, were you talking about the people in all of the different government departments rather than just people working for GDS? Yeah, absolutely. Those those 2000 work across government, so not just at GDS. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Fantastic. So you don't just have that pedigree. You've also written this amazing book, Good Services, which has come up more than once in the podcast. People have recommended it. People really look to it as as almost a Bible on service design. And in the blurb, it says that it won't tell you how to wow your users with something they didn't expect. Instead, it will tell you how to design a service that your users can find, understand and use without having to ask for help. So do you want to talk a bit about that distinction between wowing and and serving, (laughs) so to speak? (laughs) Yeah, I'm glad that you picked up that bit to talk about it first, because I think it's one of the most important things about good services. Mm -hmm. So I decided to write good services basically after uh, a, a long career of working on good and 
often very bad services, not just in the public sector, but with various different organisations. And one thing that I noticed was that I was constantly brought in to make a service amazing, you know, and to make that experience fantastic for someone uh, going through Mm. it. And even in the context of public services, often we get distracted by this idea that somehow we can create this unique, beautiful experience for someone but we forget to send them a bill on time. <laughs> we forget to you know, tell them how much something will be or to tell them that we've made a decision or help people to find a service. Mm-hmm. And these really basic fundamental things that we need to get right before we can actually start to focus on those you know, fantastic things around the outside of it just don't get done. Yeah. The reason why they don't get done ultimately is because they're the hardest to do. Mm-hmm. Sending someone a bill on time is a lot harder than sending them, you know, kind of a, a Parker pen in the post. Not that I'm saying that gives someone an amazing experience. It might have done in the 80s. But, you know, <laughs> <laughs> I'm pretty sure it didn't even then, to be honest. Parker pens. God, that was a thing, wasn't it? It was. People would send you a Parker pen as a sort of some kind of reward. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. We used to have a bit of a saying at GDS that, you know, no innovation until everything's fixed, which was controversial, (laughs) uh, to say the least, because, of course, everyone is desperately trying to innovate in all sorts of different directions and put everything on the blockchain and, you know, talk about AI and machine learning constantly. Mm -hmm. But unless we can actually get people the right benefits at the right time, and unless we can help people actually find those government services in the first place, which... Often they can't because they've got completely obtuse names and you wouldn't know to look for them unless you knew what they were called. Mm -hmm. Then we're not going to be able to actually have functional public services. So that really was the, the basis of good services is trying to kind of lay out some basic standards of what good looks like uh, for those services, regardless of what type of service it is. Yeah. And they are being able to find a service, being able to use it without getting stuck in dead ends because you've lost your phone and two-factor authentication doesn't work, mm-hmm. or for that service to be accessible and inclusive. And those are the things that I think often as designers and user researchers every single time we do a new project we discover miraculously that people need to have expectations set and we shouldn't be spending our time doing that we, we know that those are things that people need from services so this was in part also a way to help people who are working on service design either service designers or anyone else to be able to just bypass that stuff that we just already should know about services and spend their valuable time money resources on actually understanding and learning the things that are really unique about their particular service yeah there's a bit of a cheat sheet (laughs) as much as it is an sort of instruction on how to build services that work yeah that's fantastic and also particularly with government but I I mean actually with a lot of organizations when they're offering services what the user is interested is just getting something done so if you're ordering your bins I mean who cares if it's got amazing animation or graphic (laughs) really you just want to get the job done move on (laughs) exactly exactly and and I think you know that's Often something that particularly people working in the private sector sort of struggle to get their their heads around a little bit because you spend your time in a bank or a supermarket or a luxury brand thinking about that person's experience of that brand. Mm. And you don't necessarily realise that user really nine times out of ten doesn't actually care (laughs) which brand they're interacting with. And even if they absolutely love the product and the experience they're getting from you, 
getting to that thing should be as quick as possible. Mm -hmm. Even for services that are there for pleasure and enjoyment are things that we should be considering ultimately as means to an end to help someone to get to a goal rather than necessarily an experience that people want to have. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's really noticeable as a citizen that my online experience of accessing public services has been gradually improving over the last few years. And now that I've done work with GDS, I really can see because I've been involved in actually building sites that use the, the service standard. But you can tell when there's been some GDS influence that it's really simple and straightforward and you can just do what you need to do and you can see those improvements. And it's still happening. You know, there are still organisations that are catching up, but you can see them appearing in more and more places mm. and that's that's really satisfying and I guess for you that must be satisfying because you've had an influence on that yeah it is lovely to see I won't lie you know, <laughs> it's really really nice to see services becoming more accessible and inclusive and using the design patterns and standards mm-hmm. particularly where you see that in uh, a team that maybe is from a very small organization from local authorities even from charities who you know Not a lot of people are aware of the fact that the design system is an open standard for anyone to use. Mm -hmm. Obviously, the Gov.uk colours and fonts are are specific to Gov.uk, but all of the different prototyping toolkits, all of the different other patterns, all of the style guides in terms of how to ask questions to users uh, about various different things, all of those are totally accessible to anyone who needs to use them. So it's really fantastic seeing that kind of permeate through Uh, the public sector into areas where actually perhaps maybe those teams don't have the resources to hire their own designers and user researchers so they can make their services better with little effort. So that's really lovely to see. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so your book, Good Services, defines 15 principles of good service design. And I thought that 15 is quite a lot. <laughs> so I wasn't going to ask you to list all 15. Does that seem fair? That is that is fair. Yeah, yeah. We we won't do all 15. We'll be here for a while. <laughs> but do you have any favorites within the 15 or ones that you think are particularly important? It's my favorite topic. <laughs> <laughs> so I've been delivering training and masterclasses on these for a while now and I can talk about the ones that actually people find the most difficult and the most important to them. Mm -hmm. So I think the first one uh, is actually principle number four, that a good service should help a user to achieve the outcome that they set out to do. The reason why this is so important is because this is really the fundamental kind of principle to any service. Yeah. You know, if you go back to that original you know, definition of what we mean by services as something that helps someone to do something. If it's not doing that, then it's not really a service. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> the interesting thing about that one is, though, that very often, particularly large or older organisations, have often forgotten why it is they're doing that thing in the first place. And that might seem quite a strange thing to say, but over time, what happens is that we focus on how we're going to do something rather than what we're actually doing and why we're doing it. And so we know the process inside out, but we can't really remember why we're doing that particular thing. Mm-hmm. So that is always the one that we start with, actually, in the Good Services Masterclasses. It's really trying to kind of pull apart what do we actually mean by someone actually wanting to do something? What is it they're trying to achieve? What are we here to help them with? 
So that's, I would say, the first one that anyone should start with. I love that because as a consultant, actually, quite often, one of the first things that we have to establish with our clients is to help them understand what it is they're trying to achieve. And it sounds ridiculous. I mean, when you first described that principle, it seems like a no brainer. But actually, when you ask people what it is they're trying to achieve or why their team exists or why their product exists, it's amazing how often people struggle to answer that question. And there's almost two parts to it. There's you've been doing a thing for so long, you've forgotten why you're doing it. There's that. But there's also the other thing that you said of organizations need users to do things ultimately so that the user can achieve their aim. But organizations build up their own bureaucracies and their own paperwork so that internally they need a bunch of stuff to happen. And it ends up being they're just getting the user to do their internal processes without it being at all clear to the user why. How does that get the user to where the user needs to be? And actually, can you change that journey so that it's clearer to the user? Because often when you do that, it actually makes the journey simpler and more effective anyway. Yeah, yeah. And it's really hard to do because most of our jobs are spent focusing on how we do things and improving the how rather than going back to the why. And if you focus so much on how you're doing something, you forget that actually over time, perhaps maybe the how needs to change. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And maybe, you know, helping people back into work could be done more effectively through another means, or perhaps maybe helping people to stop smoking or whatever it is you're trying to do, that there might be other ways of doing that thing. And going back to that concept of innovation, that really is a thing that stifles people from innovating the most is Mm -hmm. the forgetting why we're doing what we're doing. Yeah. Okay, so that's your first principle. Well, what's your next favourite or most important? So the next one is actually uh, being able to find a service. (laughs) So principle number one, a good service should be easy to find. Yeah. And that is really connected, actually, to that principle about being able to help a user to achieve an outcome. Because unless you understand what someone's actually trying to do, you're not going to be able to understand what they're searching for and what they're looking for. And you're going to end up calling your service Form V111, the My Portal, <laughs> the iHub. And those names are essentially nouns, not verbs. So we know the name of them and it's great. We can shorten them to acronyms that we can be really quick about, you know, writing in emails. And that's very good for us. <laughs> but it's completely useless for our users because they don't know what those things are called. So I always like to think about where your service should start and the name of your service almost being a bit of a spectrum between the kind of verb of the thing that you want to do. So, for example, you know, I'm converting a barn (laughs) and I want to turn that into housing and the thing that an organisation needs to do. Uh, So to give you a barn shaped example, (laughs) I was converting a barn in the countryside. I don't have a barn to convert, by the way, but I do watch a a lot of grand designs. So you can see why I use this example. Okay, yeah, yeah, me too. (laughs) (laughs) So, you know, I'm converting a barn. That barn is full of, uh, you know, mice and rats and bats and various other bits of lovely wildlife that have moved in and made it their home. Mm -hmm. Now, for the mice and rats, I probably go, okay, I can probably move these on myself. I can put in place humane traps and put them in the woods or whatever I need to do. But for the bats, I'm probably going to look at them and go, oh my God, how do I relocate a bat? What is involved in bat relocation? And can I do it legally on my own? Yeah. So the service for me in that instance is probably going to be someone sitting down at Google going, how do I move bats legally? Or 
move bats. Yeah. So that for me is where the service starts. Mm -hmm. But if we look at this service actually in the way that it's provided, again, this is a government service. It's actually called the wildlife mitigation license that you need in order to be able to actually move bats legally. Okay. And that I think is the challenge that we've got. It's you know, ultimately the thing I need to do, which is converting a barn, the thing the organization thinks about providing, which is wildlife mitigation license, and somewhere in the middle is this kind of sweet spot of the service that I think exists as a service mm. that someone might be able to help me with. Mm -hmm. Thinking about the context of how knowledgeable people are, how niche your service is, how aware of it people might be is really important uh, when it comes to actually naming a service and also setting its scope as well. Because, of course, a name isn't just a name. A name sets the scope of a service and how big or how small it is and what it actually does for people. So renaming your service can be a really simple and quick exercise to do, to think about, actually, am I getting my user needs right? Do I know what people need to do? And ultimately, is the scope of my service actually right? Is it too big or too small? That's a really nice example. Have you used that example before? That is my favourite example, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You can tell that George Clark is my secret hero. <laughs> it's funny, you know, because as you were speaking, I was thinking about how that applies everywhere. And I was thinking about how it applies to my own personal organisation of my own stuff. I am a big note taker and I have electronic records that relate to pretty much every area of my life. But I will quite often go looking for a piece of information that I know I've made a note of somewhere, but I can't find it because I haven't used the right words. <laughs> and then what I quite often find myself doing is once I do find it, I add in some of the words that I was using when I was looking for it. Mm. I add in some keywords because I realized that when I wrote it down, I wasn't thinking about future me who was going to come looking for it and wouldn't be using the same words. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. And you end up second guessing yourself and going, what on earth would I have called that thing? Yeah. <laughs> but it's a great example. You, you know, what you're doing is a micro scale of what people are doing every day when they're looking for services that they don't know whether or not they might exist out there and that's why user research is so important isn't it yeah. because when you're a bunch of people sitting in a government department you already know a bunch of stuff you already have a, a load of terminology and the services that you're providing you're seeing from your own bureaucratic point of view you're not necessarily seeing them from the user's point of view it's very difficult to put yourself in those users' shoes, particularly as some of those users will be people whose entire life experience is just completely different to yours and have requirements that you would never have thought of. So that's why going out and trying to find those users and trying to find a, a diverse range of them as possible and, and ask them what it is that they're trying to do is so important. And something that I've noticed, which is I think it's part of this natural human drive towards tribalism, the idea of the in-group and the out-group, when you discover that your users were trying to access your service using terms you hadn't thought of and they didn't know how to find it it can be very tempting to judge them and go oh silly users you know the whole idea of the pedcat problem exists between chair and keyboard you know the kind of the shorthand that we all end up having to describe our stupid users and really they're not stupid they're just different yeah absolutely and I think it actually goes back to that definition of what we mean by a service in the first place. Because if a service is something that helps someone to do something, ultimately it's your user that gets to decide what that service actually is. Mm -hmm. So, you know, they decide that they want to learn to drive. They're deciding that they need help to support a loved one when that person can't look after themselves. They decide that they need to get treatment. 
And so the scope and the definition and the naming of those services is something that we don't get actually to decide. They do. Yeah. And they have to, at the moment, stitch together all sorts of other pieces to create that service. But that still is a service in that person's mind. Mm. Just because we don't provide that entire service of learning to drive or buying a house or whatever that thing is, doesn't mean we're not in some way responsible Mm. for helping that person to reach that goal. And actually, the provision of services is a collective act that we're all part of. Mm. That we're there to help that user to reach that end goal, regardless of which organisation or which team is involved in doing that. And I think once teams sort of understand that, I think that really starts to shift their mindset around how they work with users and what their role is in supporting them to reach that outcome. Yeah, yeah, brilliant. While I've got your attention, let me tell you a bit about Made Tech. After 21 years in the industry, I'm quite choosy about who I'll work for. Made Tech are software delivery experts with high technical standards. We work almost exclusively with the public sector. We have an open source employee handbook on GitHub, which I love. We have unlimited annual leave. But what I love most about Made Tech is the people. They've got such passion for making a difference and they really care for each other. Our Twitter handle is MadeTech, that's M-A-D-E-T-E-C-H. We have free books available on our website at madetech.com slash resources slash books. And we're currently recruiting in London, Bristol, South Wales and the north of England via our Manchester office. If you go to madetech.com slash careers, you can find out more about that. Before the break, we were talking about making services easy to find and how in order to do that, you have to see things from your user's point of view. Okay, so we've covered your top two principles. Is there a number three? Uh, The third one is that a user shouldn't really have to know which organisation they are interacting with in order to be able to get something done. Yeah. So a good service is agnostic uh, of organisational boundaries. Mm. And I think this is probably the hardest one, actually, uh, for organisations to get their heads around to be able to deliver. When we go through an exercise of helping people to assess how well their service is doing against the 15 principles, using the good services scale it's always the one that people struggle with the most Mm. and I think it is because once we've understood services as things that help people to do something once we've understood that ultimately we are just one small part of that we then start to realize that actually if we were to look at that whole journey those things are much more siloed than we first appear to be yeah and I think that realization that we need to then start doing things like sharing data where it's obviously appropriate to, you know, making our language consistent, making the experience of the service consistent. That is the moment we start to realise, oh, right, okay, (laughs) we've got some, we've got a lot more work on our hands than perhaps maybe we thought we did. So you've talked about data sharing, you've talked about consistent language and consistent experience. But, you know, it can be hard sometimes for individual teams within organisations to collaborate effectively with one another. So doing that across organisations, I mean, data sharing sounds like there could be logistical problems, but it's basically a pretty simple concept. But having consistent language between two organisations, how do you broker something like that? It's difficult. You know, I would never pretend it's it's easy. It's a really good question. I think there's 
three phases to dealing with organisational silos. I think the first one is to actually uh, own up to the fact that silos exist. So often what we do instead of that is we redraw the boundaries of our user journey so that it fits within our team or fits within our organisation. Mm. So in order to avoid conflict or difficult conversations, we just we sort of deny that those silos exist and we reshape our service accordingly. Mm. So I say the first thing for anyone to do is to realise actually the full extent of that service and to actually, you know, spot where those silos exist between different bits of uh, different teams or different organisations. The second bit, though, is to actually realise what's causing those silos, because it's really, really easy to sort of hold up your hands and go, oh, we couldn't possibly deal with this because the silos. And when we call something a silo, it makes it sound like this really nebulous, complex thing that we can't possibly change. And in reality, it's kind of three main causes for silos. You know what, before you do that, so hold that thought, three main causes for silos, it's just occurred to me, we haven't defined the term silo. And it's a word that's used so ubiquitously but, but there, there probably will be people thinking, but what do you mean? What is a silo? And I feel a bit mean asking you this because I'm not sure how easy I would find to answer it. But do you want to have a go? <laughs> I'll have a go. So uh, a silo, I suppose, is a, for me a break in a service. And it's a gap between one thing and another, often caused by the gap between one team that's operating one thing and another team that's operating another thing. Uh, and those two different teams can be in different organisations. They can be in the same teams. But I think actually Conway's law sort of describes silos most effectively that ultimately organisations tend to design services that copy the shape of their organisation. So if you have an organisation that has three different teams, you're more likely to provide three different services than you are to provide one service or two services, for example, because it's just easier for us to do those things uh, within our own boundaries. Yeah. If that makes sense. Yes, that makes sense. Thank you. Cool. (laughs) Okay. Uh, Can you remember where you were when I interrupted you? Yes. (laughs) (laughs) So three main causes of silos. Data that's not shared Mm -hmm. is probably the biggest one where we're not able to share particularly user or customer data between different parts of a service. So user tells you their name, address, date of birth and location in one part of the service and then because we don't record it in the same way in another part of the service they have to tell that person all over again Mm. so data i think is probably the biggest cause of silos the second one is inconsistent processes where essentially you might have one bit of the service that says perhaps maybe you need to have done this six months ago and this bit of the service says you need to do it tomorrow right so either the timelines or the processes just don't match up yeah Then there is inconsistent language, which is probably, again, one of the most common causes, but probably the easiest to solve, which is where we tend to call things different words in different parts of our service. So I might call it a customer reference number. You might call it a VIN number. And those two things, although they're the same, (laughs) are to all intents and purposes completely different Mm -hmm. because most of our services are mostly words. So, you know, if you use different words, then essentially they're different things. Yeah. Without understanding what's causing those silos, you can't fix them. And a fix for data is very different to a fix for language. But the next thing we need to do is is actually probably the hardest bit, 
which is actually creating an organisation that can overcome those silos. And actually, if you go back to what Melvin Conway originally wrote uh, that led to the creation of you know, Conway's law, it was that the quality of the software he was producing at that time was directly related to the quality of conversations he was able to have. And I think that's the, the clue for that next step is how do we encourage our organisation to be able to have conversations that are agnostic to the structures that we currently sit in? Mm. And those things don't come for free. So I think realising that actually collaboration is a privilege and not everyone in our organisation is going to have access to that privilege is a really important realisation and one that actually leads a lot of people to then realise that actually they need to put real time effort and money into supporting people to be able to collaborate. And I think that was certainly something that I learned at GDS. We had a programme called uh, Service Communities, which is still running. And essentially, there are large groups of people coming together across different government organisations to work on services like start a business or come to the UK and stay. And it was only through creating a safe space for people to collaborate and supporting that with express permission mm. and time and very often money mm-hmm. that those groups were actually able to start to be able to collaborate outside of their organizational structures. So realizing, I think, that that is something you need to really focus on actively doing rather than something you just expect people to do, I think, is probably the most important part of that. Yeah, That is a wonderful point that I don't think I've ever really thought about it like that before, that basically collaboration requires investment. It can't just happen. And that collaboration is a privilege. Yeah. Okay. thank you. Yeah, because, you know, if you think about it, not everyone has the ability to ask for forgiveness rather than permission. Mm -hmm. Not everyone is in a position where they can risk that that job that they've got. And often where we ask for collaboration to happen where we don't support people to do it, we end up with very undiverse groups of people getting together and talking about stuff, mm-hmm. but not actually doing anything, unfortunately. Yeah. <laughs> so so really getting people to productively collaborate and share things like user research, share their user journey maps, sharing procurement activities or redesign mm-hmm. requires real investment and support for those people. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so do you have any favourite techniques that you use or have used when helping to design services? Good question. Uh, (laughs) Do I have any favourite techniques? I suppose I don't really. Ah, okay. (laughs) I know that's controversial, but um, I originally wasn't trained as a service designer. I actually studied fine art and then economics and linguistics and loads of weird stuff. Oh, wonderful. But I think that's, you see, I think the more unusual, unexpected things people have in their histories, often the more effective they are because everything kind of comes and synthesizes in ways that are unpredictable. Yeah, exactly. And I suppose if there's any linguists listening, you can probably work out why there's so many references to verbs and nouns in the book now. (laughs) (laughs) But um, actually, thinking about it, the reason why I don't really have any favourite tools or techniques is because every scenario and every situation is different and I think where you fall in love with those techniques is the moment that you sort of stop being sensitive to the needs of of the people that you're working with and to your clients Mm. there is actually a just on a completely random tangent there is a wonderful book that kind of inspired me to take this approach which is notes on nursing Ah. by uh, Florence Nightingale and and probably a weird one to reference but it's absolutely fantastic if you read it basically as an analogy for how you should work in consultation with 
your clients or your stakeholders. Okay. Slightly strange metaphor, but seeing them as ultimately patients (laughs) that, you know, need you to listen and learn and understand and be sensitive to their needs, I think really completely shifted my my mindset on how I operate uh, as a designer in those instances. Wow. That's why I don't have a favorite method. Yeah. But one thing I would say is actually going back to the, the weird background, my background in economics has really made me focus quite heavily on money when it comes to service redesign. Mm. And I think that's one area that we we probably as an industry need to get better at talking about is the ability to be able to see where a service is costing more money than it should do or not making as much revenue as it should. Mm-hmm. I think learning the language of risk and money would probably be my kind of uh, recommended tool <laughs> if I had to have one. Wow. That's great. Thank you. Okay, so as always, we're running out of time. I always lose track of time because it's so nice talking to people. (laughs) So I'm going to ask you to play the little game that we play where I'm going to ask you to tell me one thing about you that's true, one thing that's untrue. And then I will ask you to tell me the answer, but that won't be published in the podcast episode. People will have to subscribe to our newsletter to get the truth about the truth. (laughs) So can you tell me one thing about you that's true and one thing that isn't? Okay, so I'm allergic to licorice. Okay. Very strange thing to be allergic to. Quite inconvenient, particularly if you're going to go to Scandi countries. Everything seems to be licorice flavoured and I'm allergic to licorice, which is convenient because I really hate licorice. (laughs) So that's that's one thing. Okay. And I am a trained sailing uh, instructor. Mm. Okay, so now I'm going to be really mean and ask you a few more questions. So what happens if you inadvertently eat licorice? I get a really bad rash. (laughs) (laughs) I won't tell you where. (laughs) Okay, and how long have you been a sailing instructor? So I have been sailing for about two years mm-hmm. and I learned to sail basically so I, I realised that I absolutely love the sea, slightly petrified of it. No one in my family sails. It seems to be only something that mostly very posh people do. So it was a very weird thing for me to learn how to do. <laughs> uh, mostly it's also people in their sort of 60s and 70s who, who tend to do it as well. So I was probably the youngest person by about 40 years learning how to sail. Wow. Okay. So I have recently realised that I always ask people the next two questions in a particular order. So I'm going to ask you whether you have anything coming up that you'd like to plug. And I'm also going to ask you what's the best thing that's happened to you in the last month or so. But given that the best thing question is deliberately put at the end because I want to end on a high, I think it should go at the very end. So I'm going to start by asking you where people can find you. And do you have anything coming up that you'd like to plug? You can find me at the School of Good Services, which is at good.services. And the School of Good Services more generally is there to help people to understand good services and to deliver them more easily in their organisation. So do take a look at that. There's loads of free tools and resources also there. So you can uh, assess how well your service is doing against the 15 principles of good service design using the good services scale. That's free to use. And there's various other bits and bobs there that are always really helpful when it comes to helping you and your organisation to uh, deliver better services. Brilliant. Okay. So the very last question, what is the best thing that's happened to you in the last month or so? It doesn't have to be work related, but it can be if you want. I think the, the best thing that has happened to me recently is actually seeing my wife taking a different direction in her career. Mm-hmm. 
Some of you might know her as Sarah Drummond. She used to be the kind of co-founder and director of Snook, which is another well-known service design agency. And she's recently started making a film about Section 28, ah. which, as you were saying earlier, Claire, is the clause that was brought in by Margaret Thatcher's Conservative government in the 80s that stopped local authorities and schools talking about homosexuality and anything to do with also being trans in schools for a period of 15 years. Yeah, And that 15 years was was the entire duration that both me and Sarah were at school for. Wow. So you can guess my age by that. Okay. <laughs> um, and she started making a film about essentially the effect that that's had uh, on people who are anywhere between 21 and in their 40s. And she's just started making it. And it's absolutely wonderful to see that story come to life, but also see her work on something that she's so passionate about. So I'm incredibly proud of her and incredibly excited about seeing this film. So another small plug, if anyone has experience uh, of either being at school or being a teacher during that time that they want to share, please do get in touch with Sarah. Wow. You see, then it's funny because when I mentioned Clause 28 earlier, I did actually think, oh, some people will have no clue what I'm talking about. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm really glad that you explained that. And it was a clause and then it was a section and that was just legal stuff. That was because it was an act or a bill or whatever. I mean, to be perfectly honest, I lose track of these things, but it, it sometimes gets called Clause 28 and sometimes gets called Section 28. Mm. A couple of years ago, more than a couple of years ago, I was at a reunion in Manchester for people who were at the big demos. So there was like this giant demo against Clause 28 in Manchester. And Manchester kind of led the way because Manchester had a really big gay scene. So a lot of the, the kind of campaigning against Clause 28 was almost centred in Manchester rather than London, which is unusual. And we had this giant demo and there are lots of kind of famous iconic photos of all the people filling Albert Square in Manchester. And I was involved in a very small way in organising the demo and generally the campaign. But there was a really Union on the anniversary of the demo. So whenever that was, we all got together again. And it was just fascinating seeing all those people again. And, you know, I was about 19, I think, when we were campaigning in 1988. And it was so funny seeing each other again. Some of us, we hadn't seen each other in the intervening period. But I think there's something when you're involved in a political campaign, you're involved in kind of fighting injustice. There's it kind of brings you together in a really, really interesting way. Mm. But I feel terrible for the generation that were impacted by that because, you know, it had a really, really bad impact on young people. And it was a horrendous, horrible, hideous, evil piece of legislation. Yeah. And it's, it, it's, it's amazing. I mean, seeing some of the stories uh, that people are telling about it is, is amazing and, and so sad because, you know, what you realise is that, the most effective way of shutting down a culture is to stop it from having a history and stop mm. it from talking to its children. Mm -hmm. And that's what happened. So, you know, both Sarah and I grew up in environments that were, you know, reasonably accepting of us, but we had no idea who we were really until we got to university and much later on in life because we didn't know that gay people existed. Mm -hmm. You know, I didn't know that trans people existed. So it was this sort of strange period of time that nothing really bad happened, but nothing happened equally. Mm. You know, so we were sort of denied something that I think it seems strange to people now because, of course, you know, we're in our 30s. And I think a lot of people from an older LGBT generation would think that we should be much more liberated than we are. But it's like, well, we didn't know yeah. <laughs> that any of that stuff existed. And of course, the internet didn't come along until, you know, kind of 90s, early 2000s. So we'd have no idea. Mm. 
Okay, well, we've reached the end of our time. Thank you so much for talking to me. That was wonderful. Oh, thank you. It's been really interesting and lovely to meet you. As always, to help you digest what you've just heard, I'm going to attempt to summarise it. A service is anything you're enabling your users to do, and Lou is an expert on designing good services. The government is the largest service provider in the country, so Lou's experience at Government Digital Service, GDS, was invaluable. When dealing with services, it's always important to focus on serving rather than wowing. It doesn't matter how fancy the graphics are if the user can't achieve what they came to do. Never mind the Parker pen, what about this vital document I'm trying to get? Not everyone realises the design system developed by GDS is an open standard that anyone can use to improve how they interact with users and make their services better. In Lou's book, they talk about 15 principles of good service design, so people don't have to keep reinventing the wheel and considering the same issues repeatedly. We didn't have time to discuss all 15, but we could cover Lou's top three. So the top principle is that a good service should help a user achieve the outcome that they set out to do, which seems obvious, but often organisations get so lost in the how, they forget about the why. What is the outcome you're trying to achieve? Get that sorted and you're flying. Lou's second most important principle is to make your services easy to find. Think about names and terminology that are meaningful to and findable by your users. Remember, their experience and perspective are likely quite different to your own internal staff. Focus on verbs rather than nouns. And Lou's third most important principle for designing good services is that the user shouldn't need to know which organisation they're interacting with in order to get something done. This is probably the hardest one because it means you have to collaborate across organisational boundaries. There are three causes of silos, and these are data, processes, and language that are not shared. So, in order to collaborate across organizational boundaries, share your data, try to find common ways of doing things, and use common language. This means creating organizations that are capable of overcoming those silos. As Melvin Conway said, the quality of the software you produce will be directly related to the quality of the conversations you're able to have. Collaboration is a privilege. Invest in it. Support people to do it. And finally, don't be afraid to focus on cost. Learn the language of risk and money. Okay, stick around for extra content. Hi, I'm Jack, MadeTech's events coordinator. Now, every other episode will dedicate this segment to the hack of the month, where one of our work colleagues, and in the future, our listeners too, will share a life or a work hack. Today's hack comes from our head of marketing, Lara Palaga, on achieving your goals by setting targets. Lara, do you want to tell us a little bit more about that? I find that setting a goal like, can really, really help you if you want to achieve something. Having a goal like in mind really motivates you, gives you something to strive towards and it really helps you like break things down also into smaller like steps that are like more achievable. 
I've done this personally when um, I set myself the goal to run a marathon. I mean, having the goal in the calendar, like looking forward to it, um, having like a plan to follow, like really gave me that motivation to, to actually accomplish it. So it did really work for me. I would recommend it to, to all of our listeners. Wonderful. I have to ask, how did the marathon go? I finished it. <laughs> <laughs> I survived. So yeah, I would say uh, pretty well. Hello. Working in the public sector means that at Maytech, we really care about making a difference. So, for this final Making Life Better segment, myself and my colleagues will be sharing small pieces of advice to make the world a better place. Today's advice comes from Owen Piggott, one of our senior engineers who has some advice on better team cultures, taking time to talk about non-work stuff. So, Owen, do you want to tell us a little bit more about why that's important? So I think it's probably easier to make your life better and your work better if you know the people around you. It makes everything from just basic teamwork better to being able to discuss slightly hotter topics or be able to have healthy debates. If you know people better, I think it's easier to avoid disagreements that might come out of the unknown. Awesome. I find it, also, it makes such a difference because especially when we're working at a distance like this, you have to have that little reminder that, we're actually speaking to real people and it's nice to remind yourself of that yeah yes I think it's most prominent when you only spoke to people via text as well which can happen these days when we're all remote so when when you're only speaking over slack or teams or whatever you're using if you've only interacted in that way it's it's sort of very easy for somebody to become very distant and um, to get the wrong end of the stick uh, when you're discussing things and the closer you can get to sort of real interaction, I think the better it is to avoid that sort of thing. Absolutely. I'm king of the overthinkers. And any message from, do you have a moment for a chat? To, do you have a moment for a chat? Yeah. <laughs> so actually meeting that person gives that fun bit of perspective. That's absolutely brilliant, Owen. Thank you so much for your time today and have a good one. Thank you. And that's the end of another episode. If you're enjoying the podcast, please do leave us ratings and reviews because it pushes us up the directories and makes it easier for other people to find us. I've got a few talks coming up. You can see the details on my events page on Medium, which is linked to from my Twitter profile. And you can find that at Claire Sudbury, which is probably not spelt the way that you think. There's no I in Claire and Sudbury is spelt E-R-Y at the end, the same as surgery or carvery. You can find Made Tech on Twitter at M-A-D-E-T-E-C-H and do come and say hello. We're very interested to hear your feedback and any suggestions you have for any content for future episodes or just to come and have a chat. Thank you to Rose, our editor, Gina Cady, our virtual assistant, Viv Andrews, our transcriber, Richard Murray for the music, there's a link in the description, and to the rest of our internal Made Tech team. Kyle Chapman, Jack Harrison, Carson Robb and Laura Plaga. Also in the description is a link for subscribing to our newsletter. We publish new episodes every fortnight on Tuesday mornings. Thank you for listening and goodbye.